Hello and welcome to Inside Education, the podcast for educators who are interested in teaching. This is episode 425 of Inside Education. My name is Sean Delaney. I am a primary teacher and teacher educator. My book about teaching, Become the Primary Teacher Everyone Wants to Have, published by Routledge, is now available as an audiobook. You can follow me on Twitter, where I use the handle at InsideEd, and you can email me by writing to Inside Education Podcast at yahoo.com. All previous episodes of Inside Education are available for listening or downloading if you go to my website, seandelaney.com, and click on the Podcasts tab. On this week's podcast, I find out more about the importance of social and emotional learning as a foundational component in students' learning, why it should be developed, and how this can be done. To do this, I am joined by an expert researcher in this area, Professor Sarah Rim Kaufman from the University of Virginia. Professor Rim Kaufman conducts research on elementary and middle school classrooms with the goal of using evidence to improve the quality of schooling experiences for teachers and students. However, unlike researchers who focus on curriculum content knowledge and accountability, her interest lies more in the psychological experience and social interactions of students and teachers within schools. Her research is grounded in practice and considers the diversity of students in schools and respects the challenges teachers face every day. She is committed to educational equity. You'll really like this podcast if you want to know more about the importance of social-emotional learning and how it can be infused across the school curriculum. You'll hear about resources you can use for doing this and about its relation to service learning. You'll also like this podcast if you are interested in how to conduct rigorous research on interventions in schools. And in addition, the podcast touches on the topic of relational trust among the adult community in schools, which has become a particularly relevant topic as a result of the pandemic. When I spoke to Professor Sarah Rim Kaufman recently on Zoom, I first asked her to tell us what social and emotional learning is. Social and emotional learning is the process of learning the skills that every child and every adult needs to operate well in society. So for instance, on my way in this morning, I saw these construction workers and they were carrying these enormous pieces of plywood. And I was just thinking how much cooperation it takes, how much listening to each other, And so if you're in customer service, you don't see someone walking in with a really ugly dress and you say, boy, that's an awful ugly dress. You just don't do that. So um, these are just some examples that are in real life of the social emotional skills that people need to function in society. It's a lot more than just those kind of examples. So it can mean having the skills to cooperate with people and solve problems when they come up. It's about being aware of what you say or what you do and how that impacts the people around you. If you're someone who is upset and demanding a lot, it might make the other people around you feel less good. You need to know that. That's kind of a social awareness. If you talk all the time, it means other people can't talk and you're not sharing the space well. That's a skill to learn. In the same way that, you know, another aspect of social emotional learning is the, the process of learning about your own emotional state. And when you're feeling a certain way, and that means you can't concentrate or do what you intended to do, what is it you do to manage that emotional state? 
what is it you do to change the way that you feel about a situation so that you can keep functioning? Or if you're feeling sad and you're aware of it, what is it that you do to give yourself comfort? And so it's about, you know, that awareness. It also is about knowing about our stereotypes that we hold in our heads and knowing how those play out with different people. So these are just a few examples of the social emotional skills that kids and adults need. There are everyday skills. And to what extent are they skills that we pick up going through life almost subconsciously? Or or, or to what extent is it something that actively needs to be learned? You know, or, or can it be taught, I suppose, is ultimately where I'm going with this. Well, you've nailed it. Because when we talk about learning these skills, we talk about the implicit process of learning these skills. And we talk about the explicit process of learning these skills in the same way that, you know, people learn these skills just by looking around and seeing what other people are doing. People are, you know, kids are constantly absorbing what to do or not to do from the people around them. And then also teachers or parents, community members can be very explicit about the teaching of social emotional skills. And they can build out lessons and plans and a vision for how they want their classroom or community to be. So it's really both ways. And the the important thing here is that kids are always learning from the people around them. The question is, are they learning the skills that you want them to learn? Or are they learning skills that you don't want them to learn? So social emotional learning is about being explicit and saying, okay, what I want is I want for kids to learn to develop empathy, or I want kids to be able to show respect towards each other and being explicit about that as a goal and then teaching kids the skills that they need to achieve that goal. Now, I get the part about awareness that you can certainly teach awareness of emotions, but can you shape emotional learning? I mean, like like if somebody is not inclined to be empathetic, can they learn empathy? I would say yes. So some of the early um, signs of empathy occur in the first couple of years of kids' lives. So the very early signs of empathy that can then be further developed over time. And what we often see is if you take a typical middle schooler, for example, they show empathy towards the people around them and towards their friends. They might show a lot less empathy towards people who are different than them, or people who aren't their friends. So a big part of this process of teaching empathy is helping kids go from just having empathy with the people who they already love to having empathy for people who are very different than them. And that takes a lot of stretching and a lot of growth. Yeah, that makes sense. You've written a book called Social Emotional Learning from the Start, which I think is particularly aimed towards teachers. What exactly is that book about? Can you tell us a little bit about the the contents of that book? Sure, sure. Uh, This book came from uh, some materials that colleagues and I were creating related to service learning. And one message from that work was how important it is to start really good social emotional learning 
in the beginning of the year and sort of set a path for social emotional learning that builds on itself over time. So when I sat down to write this book, I was imagining exhausted teachers who just wanted to be in a classroom that was more pleasant. And they wanted kids to cooperate with each other. They wanted kids to be able to manage their emotions better. And they were just looking for an easy to read book that would help them on that path. And so that's what this book does. And so we start with like the norms of your classroom, how do you establish those norms? Then we talk with one, we talk about one of the most, I talk about one of the most basic skills, listening and how you listen well. And what does that mean when you're listening? And what, what behaviors do you have to do to listen? And then go from listening to respectful communication. It's very easy to be respectful when you agree with someone. But when you disagree, that's, it's a little harder. And we go from that and into um, respecting people's perspectives, understanding that people have different perspectives than you. And how do you understand it? And so that throughout the book, there's a lot of examples, materials for teachers that they could use the next day. Lots of books that I've mentioned that are storybooks that can be integrated into curriculum to teach some of these skills. And then throughout, there's little boxes that I included that say, what does the research say? And for each topic, I describe what the research is behind that topic. And where do you see social and emotional learning fitting into the regular school curriculum? Because, I mean, it isn't a subject on the curriculum. In fact, it is already integrated. It's just implicit. So, for example, imagine that a student is solving a really math, a really complex math problem, and they get really frustrated, and then they start to have this attitude of "I can't do math." But then they say, "Wait a second, this is just a really challenging problem. It might be that if I calm myself down, I'll be able to try this again." And then they calm themselves down and they sit down and they're able to do the math because they're in a calmer state. That is a social emotional skill. So another example is if you're talking about kids reading books and reading about characters and a student is trying to understand the intention of a character in a book, they're stretching to take that character's perspective. So they're actually doing the social perspective taking that is a social emotional skill. So I can give another example in science class. There are all these wicked problems, sometimes called socio-scientific problems, um, like battery use in cars, for example. There's pros, there's cons, there's all kinds of issues to discuss and trade-offs in whether, you know, in, in where these batteries come from. And so talking about the complex issues about where do these batteries come from? What is that process of extraction? Who is impacted by this process? What are the pros and cons of using a car that relies on batteries? That involves the kind of decision-making that's a social emotional skill. And having that conversation with another person even adds a layer of you need to respect that person's view, even if it's different than you. You mentioned there in one of your answers, the idea of service learning, and that term is relatively new to me. What exactly is service learning? Um, service learning it involves a few big ideas. So 
What this means is it means that students are learning academic content while they're identifying and working to solve a real world problem in the community. So it's academic and they're working on an authentic problem. And that problem is addressing an issue in the community. So it typically involves some new voice. This isn't a teacher saying, we're gonna work on this problem. This is about identifying a problem and then students identifying some of the solutions to that problem and then going and working on that solution. It generally includes community partners because if you're taking action in your community, even if your community is just your school community, you need to understand the problem that you're trying to solve from the perspective of those community members. And then it needs to link to academic learning. So it's not just a social activity. It really emanates from academic learning. So can you give any practical examples of it? I mean, you've hinted at that. Here. So I had the opportunity to engage in research in fourth grade teachers using service learning with their students in this program called Connect Science. And here's what I saw. So first of all, the teachers use books to get these students really excited about civic engagement and about taking responsibility in their community. So it wasn't just that their community was doing good things for them, but they had some obligation to, to do important and good things in their community. And then I saw that teachers taught students a lot of social emotional skills, things like active listening, respectful communication, taking others' perspectives, working together on projects. And then meanwhile, the science content, students were learning about energy and renewable and non-renewable resources. So as the students are learning about the renewable and non-renewable resources, the students start to discover a problem. Not the teacher saying we have a problem here. The students, they look and they say, uh, we have a problem. We're running out of these non-renewable resources. We need to start relying more on these renewable resources. But that problem is particularly acute in the United States where less than 10% of our electricity is generated from renewable resources. So when students discover this problem, they wanna take action and they want solutions to the problem. So the teachers help them talk about different types of solutions to the problem. And there's three categories of solutions. One is you can educate others. Another is you can try to change some sort of policy. And another is you can take some direct action on the problem. So um, some of the uh, solutions that the students pursued, I think one of my favorites was an energy fair where students invited teachers and other students and families to a whole fair about energy and about where our electricity comes from. And through that, the students were, were educating others about some of the challenges that we're experiencing. So that's just one example. Another was, uh, was a more direct action was about getting people in the school to commit to not using their electrical devices for a day a week. Now, needless to say, they didn't get a lot of buy-in on this, but they got 11% of the people at the school to do this, but the kids were so disappointed. But then the teacher had to explain, you know, that's pretty good. 
11% of the people aren't going to use their electrical devices one day a week. Because of you. I don't know how long that happened for, but um, I thought that was a, you know, a compelling example of students coming up with a solution to a problem and then enacting that in their community. From what you've said, it sounds a lot like project-based learning, but it's that action in the community that seems to be the, what differentiates it from project-based learning. Is that right? Yes, mm-hmm, exactly. That service learning is one type of project-based learning. And what is makes service learning very distinct is that it, it has to be, you know, involve this youth voice. It needs to have these community partners and then, you know, both project-based learning and service learning include the academic learning. So that's the same across both. You and your colleagues have developed Connect Science, which is an approach to service learning that helps students and their teachers take, uh, tackle environmental problems. Can you say a little bit about this? Sure, sure. So it's designed for upper elementary classrooms, and the focus is on science, though service learning can be done in a lot of different content areas. And the idea here is that service learning is a great framework for bringing together social emotional skills and academic content in that kids are learning how to use and practice their social emotional skills as they engage in a service learning experience. So it's a way of kind of tying together these aspects of the academic experience. And then it also, um, with, with Connect Science, it also is really designed to be an authentic experience where kids are really solving a problem in society that's related to science. Uh, so what we did is we developed the professional development for it and materials for it and uh, ran some workshops. This is with uh, Tracy Harkins and Eileen Merritt. And then we conducted research. We did a randomized control trial and we found that those students who experienced Connect Science showed stronger science achievement and greater civic engagement, some aspects of civic engagement. And then in some classrooms where teachers really leaned into the practices, the kids also showed better social skills at the end. Has that research been replicated in more than one setting or is it in one specific case? So it's just out. This was the first study. It's out in 2021. It hasn't been replicated. We know that the findings are consistent with uh, many other studies on service learning. What's unique about ours is that it has the science component and that it's younger students, you know, upper elementary school. But to date, there haven't been enough teachers using Connect Science yet where it has where it's been replicated. Yeah, and I, and I I want to come back to that because I want to talk to you a little bit more about your research, and I think we'll we'll come back to that. But before we leave the service learning completely, I mean, you've given that example of the Connect Science project. Can service learning be applied in other curriculum subjects that you know of? It fits really well with social studies. Fits really well with science, and even in some English classes, it it could fit well. I can imagine. Um, service learning in math curriculum, but I, it's hard for me to kind of fully know what that would look like. And I can definitely see how it could fit with art classes or music classes where, you know, various arts, there's some really nice potential 
for teachers to um, create these authentic learning experiences that teach civic engagement. And when you refer to social studies, you're talking about history and geography, isn't that right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So when we go on to your research then, and I kind of want to jump around here because one of the things you talk about, and, and it's just when, you, when you, you're describing the study of the Connect Science work, you talk in your research about fidelity of implementation. And I wonder, can you say a little bit about what that is and why it's important? This is a really important idea. So with any kind of intervention, it only works if it's used. And, you know, so I joined a gym. I didn't go. Do I say that gym doesn't, you know, didn't help with my, you know, physique? No, I don't say that. I didn't go. You you can't just join the gym. So it's interesting because in education science, we've moved in our work on randomized controlled trials, we've moved towards this idea of doing what we call an intent to treat analysis and sort of comparing those people who uh, were randomly assigned to an intervention group versus a control group. Well, in addition to that intent to treat analysis, we also need to do the treatment on the treated analysis where we're understanding to what extent are teachers actually using the practices that they've been asked to use. So I've done quite a bit of work on fidelity of implementation. And one of the exciting ideas that I've worked on is related to social emotional learning. And so one of the things that happens when when any kind of social emotional learning program that goes into a school, there are gonna be teachers in the control school who who don't get the program, who are doing a lot of the practices that look like any program that exists. So what you need to do is you need to measure and understand what are the practices that teachers are using in the school that's getting this new program You also need to measure the practices in the comparison group. And you need to understand what is a typical practice. And how do you actually measure the fidelity of implementation then? Or the fidelity of, not even the fidelity of implementation, but what's going on in the control classrooms, which is how how close is what they're doing uh, to to the implementation in the intervention classrooms? So we've worked on this a lot. And this is challenging stuff as you can imagine. And there's pros and cons to every approach. So one approach is you ask the teachers what they're doing. And you ask them about their teacher practices. And you explain in the survey, you say, you know, teachers, you know, there's not enough time in the day to do everything. So teachers have to choose some practices and not others. Which of these practices do you use? And you write them with a sanitized language so it doesn't look like it belongs to a particular program. And you throw in a bunch of questions in there to really get at the full range of practices. So that's sort of using a teacher report approach. Another is you can go in and have observers who are blind to the condition or don't know much about the program, go in and conduct systematic observations of what practices the teachers are using. So we do that too. And there's pros and cons of both. One approach that I haven't seen used much, but I would love to see used, is having students report about what the practices are that the teachers are using, both in an intervention and control condition. And I find that idea really exciting because 
a teacher can do all kinds of magical things, but unless the students are actually experiencing that, there's nothing going on. So understanding it from the student's point of view would be very useful. That's interesting because I read a study recently and I, th I think you may have been cited in it, but it was uh, studying how children in a class perceived the feedback teachers gave them on their homework. Uh -huh. And that made a huge difference, how the, how the feedback was perceived by the children compared to how the teacher perceived the feedback. And, and there were differences. Oh, that's so interesting. Those are really important. That's very important work yeah. uh, to do. And I feel like uh, one of the things I've turned to more often than not recently is gathering data from more students about their feelings of engagement, their perceptions of respect at their school, their perceptions of empathy. And it's a way of elevating students' voice so we really understand what their lived experience is all about at school. Yeah. And it really informed uh, this book I wrote um, because I could really understand, like I was reading a lot of interviews of kids, doing a lot of observations in classrooms, and it just helped me understand, it's not just what the teacher's doing, it's what the student's experiencing. Is that the social and emotional learning book you're talking about? Yeah. SEL yeah. from the start. SEL from the start. Yeah. And uh, so, so, I mean, one of the things that when I was, um, you know, looking at your work, there, there's such a vast number of areas of interest that you, that you have. What theme runs across the different areas of research interest that you have? I would say there's one that's sort of substantive. And then there's another one that's sort of like a bit about the method. The one that is substantive is about this idea that I feel like every child and every adult should have experiences of social and emotional learning in their lives. And that that's just a, a part of their development. And that it's almost like putting fluoride in the water. This is something we can do for all children, all adults, that helps people be healthier and more likely to flourish. So I have this very strong commitment towards that. And it takes interesting forms. So for example, one form is about thinking about racial equity in that part of understanding issues of racial equity is it involves self-awareness, social awareness, and it's not something understanding your own stereotypes that come from just living in a, in a society where there's a lot of racism, understanding that is so critical for us to be able to improve society. And so instead of having these experiences where it's like, oh, did I just think something racist? That there's a pause and say, where did that come from? Why did I have that gut level reaction? How can I retrain my brain to think in a new way? That's just one example, but I feel like this is what this is what we need. So that's that's one part of it that motivates all of my work. Then the other part is I am I find it very disturbing that there are a lot of practices and approaches in schools that have never been studied. And so I often think to myself, if I needed a knee surgery. I wouldn't want my physician saying, you know, my intuition is that this is a great knee surgery for you. I don't like that. I would like to know there's evidence behind 
that knee surgery, that it works. And I'd also like to know that it's going to work for my knee, not for some other person's knee, but like given the, you know, characteristics of my knee, it's a good match. In that same way, I believe we need that in education. And so I'm deeply committed to taking practices that are widely used and hardly studied and then looking at those practices, figuring out how to build evidence related to those practices and understanding what aspects of those practices work or don't work and if they work better for some people than others. And given the vast range of teaching practices and the limited resources and time you have for doing such research, there must be lots of areas that you would love to study that you just can't get around to. And there are. And then there's a lot of different kinds of programs. So sometimes people will approach me and they'll say, we have this program. We're really excited about it. We'd like you to do research on it. um, And we just want you to show that it works. And I'm like, that's nice. Go find somebody else. (laughs) Because that's not, I don't have time for that. It's going to be a much more complex answer. So I, I, I need to find people, you know, programs where they're willing to say, we want to know how it's working and how we can improve it. And, you know, that, that, that's like the start of the conversation. That's a bit like the pharmaceutical companies studying their own, their own drugs, you know? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and and, and the, the, the particular areas you, uh, that you're interested in and that animate you, can you, can you trace where your interest in them grew from? Like, was it your own experience of school or was it, you know, can, can you trace that? It's interesting you say that. So as, a, as an undergraduate, I worked with monkeys and I was, worked in a primate lab and I was really fascinated by temperament that temperament that different monkeys had when they were born. And you could do interesting things in monkey labs where you can switch infants, put them with different mothers, things you can't do with humans. So I really became very interested in that research literature. And then I went and I worked on problems related to temperament with Jerry Kagan. And I was really immersed in understanding some of the psychophysiology that comes with temperament. And then I went and I volunteered in a first grade classroom. And all of a sudden I had this explosive experience of realizing that I wanted to understand children in context. And I wanted to understand the development of children in context. So I started with temperament in classroom context. And then I realized like schools are where kids are developing. And I wanna understand how teachers can help do that in a very intentional way. I love that it's so applied. I love that it's such an interdisciplinary area. And then I always think back to, I'm the youngest of four kids, and I can't help but think that I'm always trying to figure out what's going on in the situation. And um, I, I think to myself, you know, maybe that was a driver of some of my curiosity about these social environments where people spend time. A, a lot of psychologists they conduct their studies in laboratories whereas you conduct a good deal of your research in schools and what kind of challenges do you run into when conducting research in school oh so many and i'm so committed to school-based research i love it because 
it helps understand this ecology that is so important in kids' lives. So one of the challenges is recruiting schools to be part of a study. There needs to be something in it for them. So figuring out what that is, is really essential. And then also identifying problems that are really relevant to educators. So it's much better if I come in to solve a problem that they're having as opposed to like, I'd like to do a research study on my favorite topic. Well, that's not gonna fly. There's a lot of permission issues and I understand that and I really respect that. And so I uh, think about that very carefully that I give it the mom test. Would I be comfortable with having my kid in this study? What are the materials that I would wanna read? What are the things that I would worry about? And how can I solve those issues? So that's the mom test part one. The mom test part two is they say, and I'm not the mom. Let's say I'm someone who is just learning English or I'm somebody who's new to this country or I'm someone who does not have legal documents in this country. What are the issues that need to be present so that I would be comfortable having my child participate in the study? Um, so there's a lot of layers to that. And there's levels of buy-in. You usually have to have like, you know, a superintendent has to kind of agree to something. You need principals to agree. You need teachers to agree. You need, you know, the parents to agree and you need students to agree. So this is not quick research. If we move on to another area, uh, uh, Sarah, you were involved in evaluating a program called Leading Together, which was about building relational trust among the adult community in schools. What is relational trust, first of all? So relational trust is what occurs at every interaction among adults at schools. So in every interaction, let's say a teacher is having interactions with a principal. That teacher is constantly appraising, is this a leader I can trust? Do we have integrity in our relationship? Is this leader competent? Does this leader have good personal regard for me? So there's this constant appraisal of, is this a safe place to be? Is this a trusting place to be? And cultivating that among the adults at schools is challenging and incredibly important. And, and I'm sure it probably, you know, I mean, you've given an example of a teacher and a principal, but it probably applies, say, to the, the caretaker, the cleaner, the secretary, and so on in the, in the school as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And especially, I feel like some, I, I mean, I know, you know, some schools are very, very hierarchical. And other schools flatten the hierarchy among the adults in a way that gives greater say to everybody at the school. And that can be very challenging for leaders because they have to kind of give up some control and create shared leadership. When they do that, it ends up being a better teaching experience for the educators who are in that space. Yeah, and that's also like, why, why do we need to pay attention to the relational trust among the adults in schools? I mean, I suppose a lot of people would say, well, look, they are adults. So, you know, surely, you know, they can just get on with it. Yeah. Well, it's, it's important because adults, because being an educator 
is an intensely psychologically demanding job. It is an emotionally exhausting role. And so something needs to help teachers kind of uh, rebuild their resources, rebuild their energies and get a sense of, so they'll have a sense of personal accomplishment. And so these supportive adult relationships give the educators a sense that they belong there, they're doing important work, that they're supported, that people care for them. That's a very, very important idea. So whose job then is it to promote the building of relational trust among adults in a school? I mean, presumably the principal, but even how does a principal go about doing that if it is the principal's role? So I see it's partially the principal, but the principal has so many roles that it's actually a leadership team. Typically a few educators at the school that have a lot of emotional intelligence who are perceived favorably by many of the teachers at the school, a small group can come together and sort of set the tone for the school and the relational tone. So it's not only the principal, it's a, it can be a set of people that do this and who really care about teacher well-being. How is building relational trust among the adults in a school different to or the same as building relational trust with and among the children in a school? It's a lot of the same principles, but you would do it very differently. But some of it is like the, you know, the idea of feeling like you belong. That's essential for students and it's essential for adults. For them to perform well as educators, they need to feel like they belong there. The feeling of expectations that, you know, kids need to feel like someone is expecting a lot from them, but those are high but realistic expectations and that people are supporting them towards those goals. And in the same way, adults need that same thing. They need to be accountable for what they do, be held accountable, and they also need to feel like they're getting the supports they need to achieve and do their work at the highest level possible. That's it's really interesting uh, and uh, probably something that's not talked about as much as the relationship between the, the adults and the, the children or the teacher and the children. But uh... just recently, because I think because of the pandemic and the crisis that education's been in, there's been a really big increase in attention to adult well-being in schools and mental health. And I think this is, you know, decades too late, but I'm glad that we're seeing more attention to it. What do we know today about the relationship between a teacher's beliefs and their practice in, in teaching? Well, we know that teachers' beliefs that they, that they hold influences the actual practices that they do. And we know that the experiences they have in their classrooms are influencing their beliefs. So it's really this bi-directional process. And when you're trying to create change in teachers, you can try to change beliefs, which is really hard, or you can try to change practices, which is also really hard. But one avenue is trying to change practices, letting teachers see the effects of changing practices, which then alters their beliefs. 
We're coming near the end, uh, Sarah, and there's some general questions that I put to every guest, and I'd like to put them to you as well. And the first one is, what is school for, or what are schools for, in your view? Well, such a big question. They're for socializing youth, supporting youth to become citizens of our broader society. They can be used well or they can be weaponized. And they're really supporting the development of children and youth. This is where their development is occurring. Is there a teacher who had a significant impact on you? So many. I've had such incredible teachers at different times in my life. I mean, I still remember my first grade teacher who just was this small little tiny old lady. But when I was in that classroom, I felt so safe and so good. Same with my second grade teacher, so safe and so good and curious. And so I've had a lot of, I had an English teacher in high school who used to stand up on the desk when he wanted to make a point. And then I moved into the mentorship world in that I had these mentors as an undergraduate, you know, Mary Schneider, I had Jerry Kagan as a doctoral student, had Bob Pianta as a postdoc. I cannot imagine a more supportive set of mentors who have cultivated my curiosity and really have challenged me to, to do good work. What is your vision of an educated person? Somebody who is still learning, someone willing to question their most closely held assumptions about the world, someone with knowledge, both content knowledge and knowledge about our social world, and somebody who uh, feels the need because of what they know to use that knowledge to create a better community and a better world. Who or what inspires you? I would say I'm inspired by some of the most persistent people I know. So I'm inspired by kids who are dealing with a lot of stressors but still manage to be curious and creative and come up with good solutions to problems. I'm inspired by the college students who all of a sudden have an aha moment and realize what it is they want to pursue. I'm inspired by a man who I work with, his name is Brian, who spent 27 years non-continuously in prison. And he is driven to help people who are leaving prison and need to develop the skills they need for the outside world, what he calls the free world, which is not what I would call the free world. Never use that term for that purpose. And together he and I, he wrote a curriculum. He told me a curriculum and I wrote it out for him. And I'm just inspired that despite spending that much time in prison that he's retained his heart 
and he's so committed to improving society. And finally, Sarah, have you a favorite writer, book, or blog about education? I love everything written by Dan Willingham. I am a Dan Willingham groupie. I will admit that there are times in my classes where I'm teaching a topic and Dan hasn't written about it, and he's in the psychology department. I want to go knock on his door and say, would you cover this topic so I can assign your reading? <laughs> and he was a guest on a recent episode of the, of the podcast as well. And indeed, Daniel Willingham, Sarah's colleague at the University of Virginia, was featured in podcast 421. I want to thank Professor Sarah Rim Kaufman for her time in recording this podcast. And her book, SEL from the Start, is a book for teachers that discusses many of the points raised in our conversation. That's all we have time for on this week's Inside Education. You can listen back to over 420 previous podcasts by going to my website, seandelaney.com, and clicking on the Podcasts tab. Follow me on Twitter at InsideEd, and write to me by email with comments or suggestions to InsideEducationPodcast at yahoo.com. If you enjoyed the podcast, please leave a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. My book about teaching, Become the Primary Teacher Everyone Wants to Have, was published by Routledge and is available on Kindle and as an audiobook from Audible and other audiobook platforms. I look forward to being back with a new podcast soon and thank you for listening this time. Your support is appreciated. <laughs>